Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. A slow reopening is now underway in every New England state. But there's still so much uncertainty over COVID-19. I would love to return to work, but only if it's safe for me and my customers. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear how some businesses on Cape Cod are scaling back or staying closed. And a growing number of students are suing colleges, saying they did not get the education they paid for this spring. There's a difference in terms of the quality of instruction. There's also a loss of going to the library, on-campus resources. It's not even close to the same experience. Plus, a weekly club tries to bring levity to current circumstances by laughing, even if it's not funny. My problem is shopping for food. (laughs) It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start the show today on a lighthearted note, something that's kind of hard to come by these days. We begin in western Massachusetts with the Pioneer Valley Laughing Club, where an acting teacher gives people a chance to act like things are funny, even when they're not. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown recently attended this laughing class on Zoom. Bing bong, bing bong. Hello, everyone. This is the inaugural class of the Pioneer Valley Laughing Club, Pandemic Edition. Nice to see some faces I know and faces I don't. For an hour on Saturdays, Northampton native Gabe Levy, an acting and clown teacher, gathers about two dozen people on Zoom who crave a bit of levity and want help finding it. So I'll start first. My name is Gabe. (laughs) I'm in Northampton in my parents' attic. (laughs) This is not a comedy class. It's really all about the laugh, even a forced one, and many of them are. Levy asks people to introduce themselves, describe their biggest problem, and laugh. My biggest problem today is I started repainting the mudroom yesterday. That's about as big as my problem. My problem is shopping for food. Some problems, of course, are bigger than others. I'm supposed to be opening an eight-week run at the Met Opera House on Monday. That's not happening, so I'm just sort of dealing with that. Is that I'm just not feeling well for eight weeks now with the coronavirus and this week. So let's laugh about it because I really... That people are dealing with very unfunny things is exactly the point. Especially in times like this. Why not have a big belly laugh and maybe a big cry and maybe a big rage or who knows? As the class proceeds, Levy uses different methods to get the laugh. Sometimes it's a simple command. So let's let's just start with a little, <laughs> a little chuckle, right? <laughs> or he'll tell just the punchline of a joke. And then the egg said to the chicken, I guess now we know who came first. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it can be like starting, you know, getting the carburetor started or the or the big, you know, chainsaw, where you kind of have to fake it to make it. <laughs> to Levy, the act of laughing is about mental and physical health. Many practitioners claim laughter builds immunity, though according to some major studies, the scientific evidence is lacking. Mostly, though, Levy says laughter builds resilience. Which seems especially important right now. The, the ability to really still find pleasure and fun and vulnerability inside of such immense worldwide crises. <laughs> Levy knows a little something about resilience. Ten years ago, at the age of 26, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He says the best advice he got came from a holistic doctor he visited after chemotherapy. First thing that he said was, you need to smile and laugh more. Nothing will come from fighting. And that became kind of my mantra. He's been trying to laugh about his tumor ever since. He studied acting and clowning at Yale, then became a clown teacher and coach, first in New York and now Western Massachusetts. I find so much pleasure in in laughing myself, in making other people laugh, that maybe just by proxy it has kept me more resilient, since that's the, the world I, I try to keep myself in. He says his medical condition, while stable, has kept him from a traditional acting career, so he's made the best of what he's got. In between teaching gigs, he wrote a one-man show, which premiered in Northampton a few months ago. It was called A Super Serious and Not at All Funny Reading of Stories I Wrote After Brain Surgery. <laughs> oh, gosh. But just as the show was finding an audience, the coronavirus forced him, like most performers, to shut it down. And that's how Levy came to launch the Pioneer Valley Laughing Club, based on a class he's taught before. It's not therapy. But it is very therapeutic. You know, you look at the faces on people after going through this hour and they are much more open. The eyes are kind of gleaming. Some people are, you know, have tears streaming down their face. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of a purge. <laughs> there <we> go. <laughs> Levy lets people pay what they want, if anything. The money goes to his company, Completely Ridiculous Productions, and the Northampton Center for the Arts. The first meeting had a waiting list. Levy says he plans to continue as long as there's appetite for a good, hearty laugh. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. We've all seen the empty shelves at grocery stores during the pandemic, and we've heard about the possible disruption to the food supply chain. Well, this appears to be sparking more interest in local food right now. As Maine Public Radio's Susan Sharon reports, there's been a surge of people buying memberships for community-supported agriculture, or CSAs. At Willow Pond Farm in Sabattis, Jill Agnew starts up her tractor to tend to her fields that are about to be planted. Ever since the pandemic struck Maine in March, Agnew says sales at her farm stand have been brisk, and memberships in her CSA have doubled. That's where customers buy shares in the organic meat and produce that she raises and pick it up on a weekly basis. We've already surpassed uh, what I wanted for the year, but I keep signing people up because I feel like 
we're finally stepped into the mission of what a CSA is. You know, it's it's feeding the community. And if people are finally seeing that, it's like, yay. <laughs> Willow Pond was the first farm in Maine to start a CSA back in 1989. Agnew says it took a couple of years for the idea to catch on, but now there are hundreds across the state. Interest in them, however, has lagged with the rise of farmers' markets. Over the past five years, Agnew has struggled to maintain her customer base. But this year, with the pandemic, everything is different. Well, no one wants to go to the grocery store anymore. And in the beginning, when I first opened the stand, we had tons of eggs. And oh my gosh, the eggs just flew out of here. Now I have flour and I have walnuts and I have shampoo. You know, just in a small scale to see if, well, do people need that stuff too? And they do. Farms have also tried to reach customers in new ways with online ordering, not only of produce and dairy products, but fresh bread, hummus, soup, and veggie burgers. At Little Ridge Farm in Lisbon Falls, owner and farmer Keena Tracy started an online ordering system called Farm Drop for the first time this year, in which customers can select items from 16 local vendors, pay for it ahead of time, and pick it up on Fridays. Customer turnout, she says, has been incredible. We were doubling every week, and then now we've started to plateau, but we're at about um, anywhere between 70 and 90 customers every week and are selling over $5,000 worth of product every week. Tracy also sells shares in a CSA. The last couple of years have been a bit more challenging to fill, but not this year. This year, I sold out, it was like the middle of March, I sold out, and now I have a pretty deep waiting list. I got involved because it's the best way to get fresh food and help my neighbors. Tammy Greasehaber of Lewiston has belonged to CSAs before, but this is the first time she's done the food drop. She also buys directly from other area farms. I don't want to wait in line to get in the grocery store. (laughs) I go in for some things that I need, but the majority... At this point, I think I've got it organized where I can get most of what I want from the farms. While small farms haven't been forced to take drastic action like dumping milk or plowing over vegetables, like some larger operations around the country, they have had to confront some challenges. At Left Field Farm in Bodenham, for example, owner Sean Hagen says restaurant sales make up about 60 percent of his business. He also runs a CSA. But in early March, when restaurants started closing and no one was asking about the CSA, Hagen says he got pretty worried. No sales for almost three weeks when the beginning of the crisis hit. And then as soon as the end of March, beginning of April hit, it just, sales just took off. Last year, Hagen sold about 120 CSA shares. This year, he's at 140. I don't know that we're going to make up what we would, we're going to lose in restaurant sales, but at least we now have some security going forward, and we're just going to hope for the best. Hagen wonders whether the interest in local farms will continue after the pandemic subsides, but Keena Tracy of Little Ridge Farms believes it may have fueled a lasting appetite for locally grown fresh ingredients in the rediscovered pleasure of home-cooked meals. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Susan Sharon. As all New England states continue the slow process of lifting restrictions, 
More often than not, businesses are still wrestling with uncertainties around reopening. This has pushed some businesses on Cape Cod to scale back their operation, and others to consider not opening at all. WBUR's Zaninjur and Wameka reports. Business owner Mike Morrison's passion is getting out on Pompanesset Bay in his kayak. Oh my gosh, a fish just jumped. He enjoys planning tours for his bike, kayak, and paddleboard business, Right Away Adventures. It's all about the outdoors, and it completely depends on tourism. But now, with a coronavirus pandemic, Morrison is focusing on something else instead. We just redid our website to have a retail section, so that was a big adjustment. The business is shifting gears to sell more outdoor equipment online and at his sandwich and mash piece stores. Morrison has been busy reorganizing the retail displays. He expanded the shop to create more space so customers can keep a safe distance when he's allowed to reopen. Morrison is in full prep mode, tuning up bikes and cleaning. He's also scaling back some parts of his business. He'll hire less than half of the employees he normally brings on for the summer. His tours will be smaller, and he's cutting some of the more specialized activities, like paddleboard yoga. I hate to say it, but that's the first stuff that has to go because it takes guides, it's expensive, and it takes a little more logistics to run. So those types of niche things we will have to cut. The outdoor activities will be less hands-on, too. Morrison is creating instructional videos for customers who rent equipment to limit in-person interactions. He even came up with a contraption, so there's no personal contact when helping customers get their kayaks into the water. It's like a basically like a shovel handle with like a curved U at the end that kind of fits around the kayak, and we can just nicely shove them on in. <laughs> so. Morrison knows he'll take a hit due to the pandemic. But he's optimistic that enough people will still come to the Cape. I think people are starting to go a little bananas. So my hope is that we are just that release. And he may be right about that. A recent TripAdvisor survey found that most travelers are looking forward to their next vacation. Wendy Northcross of the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce has been watching travel data closely. They're saying they want to drive. That's good for Cape Cod. They're saying they want to go to the beach. That's great for Cape Cod. We know Cape Cod is a respite for people. We know that this is the place they want to go away to and recharge and relax. And boy, if you ever needed it, it was going to be this year. At least that's the hope. North Cross is part of a task force making plans for how the Cape will reopen. Some ideas include maybe closing down streets to give pedestrians more room to walk or allowing businesses to use outdoor spaces for some of their operations. Business owners on Cape Cod hope the visitors who do come are ready to spend. Amy Kelly is an entrepreneur in Mashpee, and her business is Cape Cod. She makes jewelry inspired by the landscape. Well, I've been trying to do a lot more things online, you know, pushing more social media stuff, trying to drive business to my website. But that's also difficult. There's a lot of people doing the same thing. Kelly had just opened her shop, Moon Compass Studio, when the coronavirus shut it down. She says the pandemic has taken a toll on her mental health. She also has mixed feelings about reopening and is prepared to put her business on pause this summer. I would love to return to work, but only if it's safe for me and my customers.
Governor Baker released plans Monday for a gradual reopening of businesses. Many on Cape Cod had been waiting to hear what rules and restrictions may be put in place for everything from beaches to restaurants. It's an economic tsunami that's hit us, basically. Rick Murray is the co-owner of the Crown and Anchor in Provincetown. The massive entertainment complex sits right in the middle of the town's busy commercial street. He says there are health concerns with visitors coming from all over. Also, many businesses rely on foreign workers who likely won't be able to travel. And many of the major events that attract people to the Cape have been canceled. We've got to find that balance as to what we can do to reopen, what kind of economic activity we can have, and at the same time being very careful that we don't uh, turn the spigot on too fast. Murray says he spaced out the tables at his restaurant, installed sneeze guards at his bars, and bought extra cleaning supplies and thermometers to check temperatures. But even with all these preparations, Murray may not be able to reopen. If we can meet the guidelines and we can make it work, we'll, we'll make it work. But if we can't fit the guidelines, you know, how can you open up your business? It's a question many Cape Cod businesses will be weighing as the state begins to reopen. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Last week, we had a story about Connecticut allowing hair salons to reopen on May 20th. If you missed it, the gist was some hairstylists were worried about safety. Now Connecticut's governor has reversed course, saying he'll keep salons and barbershops closed till at least June 1st to better align with Rhode Island's reopening plans. Some business owners celebrated the decision. But Valerie DeVito told Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano that she was frustrated by the last-minute change. I don't understand how a day and a half before we're supposed to open, with all the preparation and everything that we've done, all of a sudden it's not safe to open. DeVito says she already bought as much personal protective equipment as she could to reopen on the original date. As states reopen... What do you do if you have an underlying medical condition that puts you at higher risk of COVID-19? Health reporter Nicole Leonard of Connecticut Public Radio spoke to people with pre-existing conditions to find out what's on their minds. Sarah Kitt had begun a two-week period of quarantine in her home in Fairfield, even before the official stay-at-home order started, isolated away from her husband and children. It was lonely. It was painful to have basically no contact other than yelling up and down the stairs to people. Kit has multiple sclerosis, and she took these precautions to make sure that nobody had brought the coronavirus into their home. Because if they had, she might be at a higher risk of serious illness due to her condition and the medications she takes. And with the state resuming some business and community activities, she may have to do that again. That's what it might have to come down to for families like mine, where one person is compromised, but everybody else has to get back to, you know, life as normal or as normal as it's going to get. Governor Ned Lamont and the Reopen Connecticut Advisory Committee have come up with specific ways in which restaurants, offices, retail stores, and other sectors can resume. They recommend people continue wearing masks, that indoor spaces operate at half capacity, and that workers use personal protective equipment. The goal is to restart the local economy and give people the opportunity to work without inciting a second wave of disease outbreak. But it's an 
uneasy situation for people like Kit. Her husband lost his job at the beginning of the pandemic, so the prospect of work and health benefits is appealing. If he finds a job and it requires him going somewhere in person, will he take it? And if he does, what are the precautions we're going to take and how are we going to set up a decontamination space for him so he doesn't bring it home to me? State officials are still urging older residents and people with underlying health conditions to stay at home. Dr. Albert Coe, an epidemiologist on the Reopen Connecticut Committee, says for those who do go back to work, masks, protective equipment, and education about social distancing and hygiene will go a long way in keeping everyone safe. Those are all the mechanisms that are not only going to keep our population safe, but keep those people with underlying medical conditions, those people vulnerable for you know, the severe complications of COVID are protected. But Doug Schwan says it's not that simple. He lives with type 1 diabetes, a lifelong chronic illness that requires insulin and other treatment. If he ever struggles to manage the disease, his immune system could be impaired. Being diabetic, the first thing I was really taught by my doctors was like, you you can be completely independent, but you have to think ahead about things that most people never will have to. So early on, Schwan bought masks with filters and other supplies. He prepared for the possibility that his employer, a nonprofit in New Haven, would move to telecommuting. But with a position that involves frequent in-person contact, Schwan says that wasn't an option for him. He's had to stop working and began collecting unemployment. I'm really not sure my job's even going to be there when I when all of this ends. But if the government is still recommending that people who are at higher risk of COVID-19 complications stay home, Schwan questions what that means for people who want to stay safe from the virus but need to earn an income or get benefits like health insurance. So then is the government going to continue my unemployment insurance? Are they going to pay for my insulin? Are they going to pay for my insulin pump supplies. Some public health experts have suggested that special considerations be given to people with underlying health conditions, things like providing them with N95 masks, continuing remote work, or making adjustments to minor job functions. Lisa Levy, staff attorney at Greater Hartford Legal Aid, says these might be viewed as reasonable accommodations, which are typically granted under fair employment and disability laws that protect against discrimination. If their disability is is placing them at a higher risk due to the COVID, then I think arguably that person would have a viable claim to a reasonable accommodation in the workplace, depending on the specific circumstances. Levy says people should also know what their rights are concerning information they're asked to divulge on job applications or during interviews. People do have a right to be concerned, but people should be really aware that in the hiring process, no questions about COVID-19 and its relationship to you should come up. Sarah Kitt says there's still a lot of unknowns about how to go forward from here. But as people resume activities, she hopes they remember that the pandemic continues to present scary challenges for families like hers. I don't have the answers. All I can say is I don't want to die. <laughs> you know, that's that's the only answer I have. Um, so I'm going to be staying home for a long time. Connecticut began its first phase of reopening on May 20th. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicole Leonard. After the break, an uptick in students suing colleges, alleging they did not get their money's worth this spring. Plus, questions linger about antibody testing and how it can help. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters. 
who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. There's a growing number of class action lawsuits against colleges and universities. Students are claiming they did not get the education they paid for after transitioning to online classes this spring. The University of Connecticut, Boston University, and Brown University are among the colleges in New England being sued. Steve Berman is managing partner of Hagen's Berman Law Firm, and he represents a student suing Brown in Rhode Island. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. So your firm filed a lawsuit against Brown University at the end of April. And in a nutshell, what are you arguing? We're arguing that Brown didn't deliver what it promised, which was a full, hands-on, on-campus educational experience. And what they offered through their online programs just is not even close to the same experience. This, the student you're representing is staying anonymous. They're identified as John Doe in the lawsuit. Is that right? The plaintiff in the lawsuit is John Doe. The plaintiff was afraid that the school might retaliate against her or him if their identity was known. A spokesperson for Brown said in a statement that, quote, During this time of global crisis, no aspect of our daily lives are what anyone expected. However, what has not changed is the core value of a Brown education. What about this idea that this is a highly unusual time where very little is turning out as we expected? Can you and and the students sympathize with that? Look, we all sympathize with the fact that Brown had to close. They did the right thing. No one's quarreling that. But at the same time, you know, tuition at Brown is very expensive. Many parents spend years saving up for that tuition, expecting to get a certain level of college education, and they didn't get it. Now, Brown has an endowment of $3.6 billion. I think Brown is better able to tackle the financial hardship than the parents and the students. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And, and something that I'm, gets confusing when we've heard right now, many colleges and universities were already struggling ahead of the pandemic. And actually, in a New York Times op-ed, the president of Brown University said it's not a question of whether institutions will be forced to permanently close, but how many are going to be forced to permanently close. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is this lawsuit a bit like adding salt to a wound, or is it really the case that Brown has this huge endowment and they're fine? Well, we're aware that a lot of schools were struggling, and we haven't really targeted any schools that we think can't afford to pay the students or the parents like Brown. So you're being strategic in terms of which schools you're bringing lawsuits against. We're being very strategic. I've been asked to bring lawsuits against some very small schools that I just don't see how they're going to stay in business or how they could afford to do refunds. That doesn't mean that parents or students shouldn't get those refunds. I just think it's not realistic to expect all colleges and universities to be able to do that. How many how many students are you representing at Brown? Is it just the one? And are you also representing students at other New England colleges? So the suit against Brown is what's called a class action. And the idea in a class action is you don't have all the students have to sue. Only one can sue, and if the judge approves it as a class, then every student at Brown who paid spring semester tuition 
would be entitled to a refund if we win. What what made you want to represent students in this particular type of case? You know, at first I was kind of negative, um, like, hey, they don't need this headache right now. Um, they're trying to do the best they can. But then, you know, as talking to some of the parents and thinking back about people in my family who have raised money to send their kids to school, it's a big deal for most families to finance a college education. And if they're not getting their money's worth, the right thing to do is to get them a refund. That was Steve Berman, managing partner of Hagen's Berman Law Firm. He's representing students suing Brown University and other schools. We reached out to Brown for comment, and a spokesman said the university has credited unused room and board fees for students, but he said they are not refunding tuition. Quote, tuition pays for learning. While learning remotely, students continue to receive a world-class education and to earn academic credits toward completion of their degrees. The core value of a Brown education has not changed, unquote. And by the way, Brown says its endowment is actually $4.2 billion, not three point six. First responders have been dealing with a new normal over the past few months. Patrick Crowley lives in Underhill, Vermont. He works in marketing, but he's also one of a handful of volunteer emergency medical service workers, or EMTs, at Essex Rescue. Patrick kept this audio diary during one of his shifts. So I'm here on a Thursday night. Um, it's 6.50. I started my shift at 5.45 tonight, and about 15 minutes later, we had our first call. Dispatch Essex Rescue, town first response. ADS Street copies tones and is responding. Dispatched as uh, possible untimely. So sadly, that's, um, you know, a person suspected to have died um, in their home. We responded and um, entered the home and just confirmed, um, confirmed the signs of death. Part of being a first responder is learning how to deal with that. But you're, you, you're left with so many questions. I mean, how um, we don't know what led to this person's death. We don't know exactly how long he was there, but it appeared to have been there a while. And yeah, I don't know if it's the result of what we're dealing with with COVID or not. We're getting another call right now. So I'm here uh, sitting in the driver's seat of our ambulance, Essex 2, on our second call. Got a face mask on and goggles, but I'm not inside at the call because one of the things we're doing is just trying to limit the number of people we put inside a house, the number of people we have in the back of the ambulance with patients. And of course, if we had a call where we needed a larger crew, of course, I would put PPA on and, and help out. But in this case, I'm just waiting to see if they need any help. PD Essex 2. Transporting. We've arrived at the medical center. As I sit here waiting for my crew to wrap up the call, I'm noticing a lot of signs around this side of the hospital and messages of thanks and gratitude to all the healthcare workers. And, you know, I was thinking about how I volunteer to do this once, maybe sometimes a couple times a week. And after I'm done, I go back home and I go to work and I stay home. And it's just really different for 
people that do this day in day out as their job you know just feeling a lot of gratitude for all those folks it's just after 1 a.m on thursday night i am busy trying to complete a report for our third call sometimes you're about ready to go to sleep but you gotta finish the paperwork and we got a lot of extra questions related to COVID just in terms of what we wore on scene and what the answers to some of the COVID screening questions were and all that. Hoping to just finish up this report and maybe we can uh, see if we can get some sleep. It's 4.55 in the morning. Last call was hours ago. Got a few hours of sleep. Not sure why I'm awake, but I'm awake. Thinking back to our first call, the person that had died in their home you know, this person had 30-something messages on their home phone and the answering machine in their house. I don't know, you can't help but think if this is somehow impacted by everything going on, people reluctant to visit, people reluctant to check on someone. We just obviously don't know what happened, but comes to mind for sure. And then the other thing I guess I'm thinking about is we had two calls today where there are sort of loved ones that really wanted to come with us in the ambulance or fall close behind. And we have to tell people that we can't have anyone in the ambulance with us with only a few exceptions for super critical patients. And then that they are not allowing visitors in the hospital. Again, same exceptions. I'm just thinking about like the husband who saw his wife going to the hospital tonight with us i imagine he's back at home in the middle of the night thinking wondering what the update is and of course we relay the hospital his phone number and i'm sure the hospital's really great about calling family members and keeping them updated in lieu of having visitors there but it's not the same i wouldn't be surprised at this point if this there's some sort of new normal but it, all this could also be because I'm awake at 4.58 in the morning. Anyway, I'm here for about another hour. We'll see what the morning brings. All right, it is exactly 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, shift is over, has been for a little over an hour. Just caught up with the day crew for a while. And um, did my last temperature check before I could leave the building. All good. And uh, ready to go home and uh, work. Yeah, do my day job. That was Patrick Crowley, a volunteer EMT with Essex Rescue. Vermont Public Radio's Anna Van Dyne edited his audio diary. Now to our story about antibody testing. It's not clear yet whether people who've had COVID-19 become immune, and if so, for how long. Tests for the coronavirus antibodies that could indicate immunity are already available in Massachusetts and other parts of New England. But, as WBUR's Carrie Goldberg reports, there are many lingering questions about how to interpret the results. In mid-February, a nasty bug hit Matt Kelly's whole Cambridge family. First, his wife Annie, a teacher, got the fever and fatigue. And then it rapidly spread to me, 
and then rapidly to our son who is in kindergarten and our daughter who is in preschool. All of our symptoms fit all of the symptoms of COVID-19. Like a cough and lost sense of smell. Kelly, who works in online publishing, tested negative for flu and strep. It sure seemed like the coronavirus. It was so infectious, half the students in his son's class got sick. But this was before the coronavirus was known to be spreading in Massachusetts, so the family wasn't tested for it. For weeks after they recovered, Kelly wished he could be tested for the antibodies that would tell him whether he'd had COVID-19. I'm not trying to talk myself into a false delusion that I've already had COVID, I'm cured, I'm immune, I can go be a hero. We cannot prove or disprove this idea right now that we may have had COVID and it may already have cleared our system. Now, that is changing for Matt Kelly and many others. Antibody testing is starting to become so easy to get that it was even recently offered in a Cambridge bar. That is, until the city closed it down on Tuesday, saying the testing violated the bar's zoning. The chain Physician One Urgent Care has been offering antibody tests at its four Massachusetts locations since April 30th. We're seeing a lot of interest in getting tested. Dr. Jeannie Kenkery is Chief Medical Officer of Physician One Urgent Care. She says insurance is expected to cover the tests, and she estimates that more than 350 Massachusetts residents have gotten them so far. The majority of these people are folks who had symptoms that were similar to COVID, but didn't have an opportunity to get tested because the testing wasn't available for them at the time they had their symptoms. Kenkery says Physician One is using an accurate test through the lab company Quest Diagnostics. But in general, there have been and remain major questions about the accuracy of antibody testing. The American Medical Association just put out a warning that most of the 120 antibody tests on the market have not been approved by the FDA, and a positive test is not a reason to stop physical distancing. Testing expert Michael Minna at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health worries about what he calls a flood of antibody tests onto the market, particularly at-home tests that could be damaged in transit. So until some of those issues are worked out and you have really credible sources of these tests uh, and they've become more a little bit more stable, I, I think that people shouldn't consider them as, a, as anything more than a toy. Meaning a test could be a way to satisfy curiosity, but nothing more. Harvard epidemiologist Yonatan Grad says there's an even more basic problem. One of the reasons why people are so enthusiastic in, in taking these tests is the hope that it would indicate that they are uh, immune privileged, right? That they have had the infection and now they're immune. Well, while it's likely the case, we don't know that for sure. And having antibodies doesn't always mean protection. In HIV, for example, Harvard pathology professor David Walt says even accurate coronavirus antibody tests today tell you just one thing. Have you been exposed to the virus? They do not tell you whether you are protected from getting reinfected by the virus. They do not tell you whether you are still potentially able to infect others. Walt and others are working to determine how to test for protection rather than just exposure, but that research is still in early stages. Even with all the uncertainties about the test, many people like Matt Kelly just want to know whether they've had the coronavirus. So I booked the appointment and I went. Kelly recently got his blood drawn for an antibody test at Physician One Urgent Care. Four days later, he got the result. Negative. 
He says he asked how many negative results like his were wrong, and the technician on the phone said 20%. Which means, really, that I still don't feel very confident that I know if I had it or I didn't. I don't really care what the answer is so long as I know it's accurate. That seems to be the elusive thing right now. That and a far greater understanding of immunity to COVID-19. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Goldberg. Coming up, part two in a series about ticks. We'll talk about what to do if you get bitten. Plus, we hear from one of the youngest principal cellists in a major orchestra in North America. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Last week on the show, we asked you to share how you feel about states reopening and life entering yet another new normal. Catherine Weber had this to say on Twitter, quote, We are only at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. I worry that changing the guidelines will cause people to drop appropriate behavior entirely, unquote. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, Catherine. During the lockdown phase, I've been watching the Michael Jordan documentary series, The Last Dance. I've also been looking for new birds to add to my quarantine bird list and playing lots of word games. How about you? Have you been able to find new sources of joy during the pandemic? Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. We look forward to hearing from you. It's time for part two of the series Tick Season, where Taylor Quimby brings us straightforward advice on tick-borne diseases. Taylor's the host of New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Patient Zero. And today's topic, what to do if you get bitten by a tick. If you find a tick burrowed into your skin, the very first thing you should do is panic. I'm kidding. There are three things to remind yourself when you've been bitten. Not all species of ticks carry Lyme disease. Of the species that do, not all of them are infected. And even when they are, diseases take time to transmit. So step one is not to freak out. It's remove that tick as quickly as possible. This is Eric Foster, a medical entomologist with the CDC. We don't recommend that, you know, people use a match or cover it with petroleum jelly or anything like that. Funny story, I once moisturized a tick that was embedded in my chest with hand lotion and then burnt myself trying to get it off with a match. Don't be like me. Use tweezers. Do it as fast as possible and pull it straight out. No twisting, no freak out moments. Again, with the don't freak out message, this is Caitlin Morse, a doctor of infectious disease and executive director of Bebop Labs, a nonprofit that's tracking infected ticks in New Hampshire. This is pretty cool stuff. We could actually do tables by town because our data... She's doing that by collecting ticks. So if you find one that's not embedded in your skin, say on your dog or your clothes, you can stick it between two pieces of tape and mail it to Caitlin. 
She'll add it to Bebop's growing database about where and how many New Hampshire ticks are infected with the pathogens that cause Lyme disease, as well as other tick-borne illnesses like anaplasmosis and babesiosis. So we're getting more ticks earlier this year than we were last year. We got some as early as February. If step one is to remove the tick, then step two is definitely to identify it. And that's why it's important to know your area's ticks. Are if there's any white on them, you found a dog tick. If there's any red on them, then you found a black-legged ticks, although that's only the female. Here in New England, you will find a number of ticks, but the vast majority will be either dog ticks or black-legged ticks, also known as deer ticks. Based on the advice of experts, I've come up with a helpful rhyme you can use as a guide. If there's any white, you're probably all right. But if you cannot tell, uh get some help. The problem is if they are the nymphs, which are so tiny, they really don't have a lot of identifying features. Maria Duke-Wasser there, disease ecologist at Columbia University. In fact, we have an app called the Tick App that can do just that. So you can take a picture and send it to us and we tell you which tick it is and how long we think it might have been on you. So second point, even if you pull out a black-legged tick, It's very, very unlikely you've contracted something like Lyme disease unless it's been embedded for 24 hours or more. The problem is, well, it's hard to know how long the tick has been in there. They're small. The size of a poppy seed, which is not trivial. The folks behind the tick app can estimate with a photo, or you can take the next step and get your tick tested. Technology and Tick Report are two commercial labs where, for somewhere between $25 and $50, you can get a full workup on your tick. They'll identify the species, tell you whether it's fed or partially fed, and, maybe most importantly, tell you if it's infected with disease. If it's a black-legged tick, and I don't know how long it's been on me, then I'm like, okay, this is one that I'm definitely going to get tested. Most of the time, a tick bite does not by itself warrant a dose of antibiotics. That's the normal treatment when a doctor suspects you may have Lyme disease. Some doctors will give you a prophylactic dose of antibiotics for a tick bite. Others will tell you to wait and see. The CDC only recommends prophylactic antibiotics for black-legged tick bites where the tick has been embedded for over 36 hours. And only then in Lyme endemic counties and states like New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Maine. For short-duration bites, the low risk of infection isn't necessarily worth the side effects of the medicine. But even if the risk isn't high enough for a preemptive strike, it is wise to remain vigilant. Save that tick and um, watch for symptoms. Again, this is Eric Foster from the CDC. Keep an eye out for fever and body aches, um, any kind of joint pains, any rash. And if you get any of those symptoms or more over the next few weeks, see your healthcare provider immediately. So those are your three easy steps. Remove the tick, identify the tick, and monitor for symptoms. But as someone once told me, the ticks you find aren't the problem. It's the ticks you don't find that you should really be scared of. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Taylor Quimby. That story is part of the series Tick Season from New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Patient Zero. You can learn more about Lyme disease by listening to Patient Zero wherever you get your podcasts. Henry Shepard is among many college students who recently graduated in a virtual ceremony. 
But on top of that, the 21-year-old from Yale University has been appointed principal cellist of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra in Canada. As Connecticut Public Radio's Lori Mack reports, that makes him one of the youngest principal cellists of a major orchestra in North America. Henry Shepard will receive his history degree from Yale. That's correct. The young cellist was not a music major. I think history is an incredibly broad discipline. And above all, it teaches you a way of thinking that encourages memory in terms of being able to make connections. And that idea of memory is so important to music as well. One thing that I've been very lucky to do as a history major is to notice that generally every generation faces some big challenge. And I think what I'm realizing at this particular moment is that, you know, I would have perhaps been naive to think that my generation would get skipped over. Speaking from his parents' home in Westchester County, New York, Shepard says right now the coronavirus pandemic is challenging just about everything, making it feel kind of muddled because I've done my final assignments for school, my final tests, and my first projects for the job in Vancouver, all sitting in my bedroom. Sitting in his bedroom probably hasn't been as easy for Shepard as it sounds. He recently finished a short tenure as principal cellist for the Rhode Island Philharmonic, a position he held at the same time he was still taking classes at Yale. Although always fascinated with music, Shepard says he was a late bloomer as far as deciding to commit to it professionally. Because of the pandemic, the Vancouver Symphony has been featuring its musicians in digital performances. Shepard explains how he and VSO concertmaster Nicholas Wright perform this version of Bach's Air on the G-string. I would record the lower two parts, so the cello and the viola part, and then he would record both violin parts. And what you do is it's kind of like building Legos. So you start from the bottom up, and then we layer each successive part. Shepard says music has the power to ground both listeners and performers in their own personal memories. We can all think about songs or different pieces of music that have meaning to us because of particular moments in our lives even a moment as historically challenging as this. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lori Mack. That's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.